way, bad news first. This place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos. First, we have to get within the casino cages, which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. Next, through these doors, each of which requires a different six-digit code changed every 12 hours. Past those lies the elevator. This is where it gets tricky. The elevator won't move without authorized fingerprint identification, which we can't fake, and vocal confirmation from both the security system within the Bellagio and the vault below, which we won't get. Furthermore, the elevator shaft is rigged with motion detectors. Meaning if we were to manually override the lift, the shaft's exit would lock down automatically and we'd be trapped. Now, once we get down the shaft, though, then it's a piece of cake. Just two more guards with Uzis and the most elaborate vault door ever conceived by man. And you're listening to George Clooney and the boys plotting their caper. And that's Ocean's Eleven, the remake of the great, well, Rat Pack movie in the 50s. And by the way, Americans love movies about heists. The Italian Job, Goldfinger, the best James Bond movie about a big heist. And, of course, the scenes in Goodfellas about that epic Lufthansa heist in JFK. And what happened after, it really anchors the entire movie. And, well, we're talking about stolen things here in this segment. And that brings us to Nate Scott, who's written for USA Today, Fox News. He's at SB Nation now. But this is his own story and a friend's story about a stolen wallet. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. And as soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. So he had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. 
I had already gone to get a new license and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. <laughs> and that's so true, and thank you, Nate, and thank you, Riley, for sharing that sort of humiliating story. It's happened to us all, and uh, I don't tell a lot of stories about myself, but I had, a, I had something stolen. By the way, we'd love to hear the things from you that got stolen, the most precious things, the stupidest things. But for me, it was a car. It was my first car. And it wasn't just any car. It was a car I'd wanted ever since I'd seen Steve McQueen fire up the Mustang Fastback, the 1968 Mustang Fastback, in the greatest at that time car chase ever seen in movie history. And again, the movie was Bullet. And check it out. It's still, to this day, as good a car chase as you can see and as gripping. And it was a GT2 Plus 2 the one in the movie, and he was chasing a Dodge Charger through the streets of San Francisco, uphills, downhills. It was just fantastic. And McQueen, of course, drove his own car. Uh, McQueen loved speed and ultimately loved racing cars. And so what did I do? Well, like lots of kids, we saw that movie, great product placement by Ford, if it was, and I wanted that car, and so I saved for it, and I got parts for it, and it was many years later, um, almost two decades later, that I was trying to assemble my own version of that bullet car. And not, well, not exactly like it. I couldn't afford it, but something close. And it had the V8, the 289 cubic inch V8. It had the fancy spoked wheels. It had the pony interior. It even had factory air conditioning, which was a drag and a real pain to get. Well, I took that old Mustang Fastback down to Georgetown from New Jersey. And Georgetown is in Washington, D.C. My buddies were there, and I wanted to show off the new car. It was finally ready to go. A little road trip down the New Jersey Turnpike, the Delaware Turnpike. Straight around 495, around the Capitol. Right down to M Street in front of Mr. Smith's. It was a rainy night. It was November. And my friends were in the front. I could see them in the front of the bar, so I just left that car running. And I went inside, and it was no more than a minute. And I came out, and that old car was gone. Long gone. And I cried. I mean, I cried. And then I screamed. And then I called the cops. And let's just say Washington, D.C. at the time, a call for 1968 Mustang Fastback redone. Well, that was a laugher when I told those guys what I'd done. And then the problem? Well, telling my dad. And, well, you couldn't lie to my dad. He was one of those old, well, sort of military types who you couldn't lie to. And I finally just told him what had happened. And uh, he said, good luck with uh, your transportation for the next couple of years. And that was it. I walked a lot. And I learned a lesson. Don't leave a car running with the keys in it on a crowded city street. <laughs> Pretty dumb, huh? My theft story. Nate Scott's story. Here on Our American Stories. And you can go to Our American Network to hear all that we do. OurAmericanNetwork.org That's OurAmericanNetwork.org Habib, 
this is Our American Stories, and we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to music to sports and, of course, history. We love talking about history, but we also love talking to Heidi Mitchell at the Wall Street Journal because we love her regular feature there, The Burning Question. And this last burning question, what's the best way to take an afternoon nap, had us all puzzling. And Heidi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Heidi, begin begin with things simple. Are you a napper? Uh, so there are three types of people. There's those who can just fall asleep, like on a train standing up. There's people who, who like to take a nap and can take a nap. And then there's people like me who say there's just no scenario in which I could fall asleep during the day. <laughs> yeah, you're my wife. She can't ever fall asleep. I, my wife says I'm not a napper. I'm a narcoleptic. I can fall asleep. Right. I can just dead fall asleep anywhere when I'm tired. So I don't know yeah. that I'm a napper. I just I just fall asleep. So I fall in that first category. Tell us about who you talk to about this thing called napping, Heidi. So I talked to a guy called David Dingis, who is a professor at Penn at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's written a book on this stuff. He's a, a real expert, and he was really deep in the weeds. It was a great conversation. He has lots of um, thoughts on your chronobiological clock and 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 the medical aspects of napping um, and also coffee, which are one of our other favorite subjects at the Wall Street Journal. Um, so yeah, he had a lot, a lot to say. Um, he's a big advocate of naps, as we all should be, it turns out. And he said something about naps being either voluntary or involuntary. What's the difference between the two of those? And also, what did he have to say about sleep more generally? I mean, oh, do we need naps because we're not getting enough sleep? Or do we need naps so, in addition to the sleep we should already have? So there's a couple things. Is I mean, most of us in the in the modern world, we tend to be sleep deprived. We're supposed to get, you know, it varies between seven and ten hours, depending on which doctor you ask. But most of us aren't building in the seven hours of sleep. That means getting into bed, you know, a half an hour before you go to sleep, right? So you get the full seven hours of sleep. Um, and most of us just don't have that kind of time. So we're we're sleep deprived. We build up the sleep debt. We're tired, and so a nap can alleviate that. Even a short nap can alleviate that. So if you're super-duper um, sleep-deprived, you will, rather than taking off your clothes and getting into bed and, and building a nap into your day, you'll have what's called an involuntary nap, and you'll just fall asleep at your desk or on the train or while driving your car, God forbid. Um, so, you know, you want to try and avoid sleep debt for sure. That's like the main thing. But then also there's this genetic component, which we can get to later, um, which is not well understood, but it appears as though we are programmed evolutionarily to want to nap kind of after lunch and at how, the height of the heat. Talk about that genetic component. Let's talk about that right now, Heidi. So the theory is that, you know, at the height of the day when, you know, most of civilization evolved around the equator where it's super hot during the day, the animals are not out there napping. So it's a safe time to go take a break. Um, so, so there seems to be this window after lunch, before dinner, there's a question of where exactly it falls, but where your, your biological, your evolutionary clock wants you to just chill out, which is sort of why at four o'clock we all need a cup of coffee, right? We get yep. tired or sugar, you know, we need something to boost us. So, you know, they're not totally sure why, but the thinking is that, yeah, during, for most of humanity, you know, those were safe hours to sleep and you couldn't hunt and you couldn't really forage. It was really hot. 
And so it was a good time to sleep. And then when it got dark, you went to sleep. And when it got light, you woke up. That makes complete sense. And any of us who spend time when we're on vacations, we've been to the beach all day. I mean, we, we know that that cycle kicks in hard yeah, at, exactly. at four o'clock. Yeah. Hot, you fall asleep. And, and sometimes you wake up if you, if you were awoken by an alarm or you didn't get, you didn't catch up all of your sleep debt and fill your sleep tank all the way. Um, you might feel a little bit groggy. And so a lot of people don't like that, which is why a lot of people choose not to nap because they don't feel great when they wake up. They feel like they're not a hundred percent. So this is where coffee comes in. Yep, but yep. uh but a lot of people will avoid a nap because they don't like that groggy feeling. They just don't feel like they can perform. Right. And so how exactly do we doze off? Because this I thought was the most interesting part of the piece. I know, right? So fascinating. So it's very biological. So your muscles start to relax. So let's say you're you're standing up on a train holding onto the bar in the middle there. So then your arms start to lose their um control and they relax and then your hands relax and then your eyelids go and then your neck goes right so then your head falls over and then you jerk up okay so this is terrible because your brain does not go into um a good deep sleep and you're just it's almost like a disturbed night of sleep you're just like falling and rising and falling and rising you can imagine how it does kind of feel amazing though that feeling of falling into a deep sleep when you're not supposed to right there's some some like guilt, delicious guilt built into that, but it's not, it's not going to give you the replenish your sleep debt the way that a voluntary nap where you're laying down is going to, it's going to, it's not going to do that for you. Well, I love the part here where you say that triggers the part of your brain that feels you're falling. That's of course where the neck goes, which wakes you up. I mean, how many times yeah. are we woken up by the nap we're almost involuntarily pushed into by our exhaustion? Or how about in a meeting? <laughs> That's even more exciting. That's the worst. <laughs> that Sunglass. is the worst. That is so. So, what's the best way? The the very best way to take a nap. So it's funny because the way that we work now, I don't know what your office is like, but typically offices now are open plan, and even those that are fortunate enough to have an office, they tend to be glassy. So this is not a good way to take a nap because you. you for, we're not sure why. I think it has to do with, you know, our animal instinct, but you need to be in a safe place. So he was talking actually about homeless people and how it's really so sad to see people sleeping on a park bench because it's not a safe environment to sleep in. And so they're probably not getting quality sleep. Um, and so we're a little bit in a zone all the time. Um, but so you want to be in a, obviously in a cool place because you sleep best when it's like in the sixties. Um, you know, ideally you want to be, you want to be prone because when you're laying down, um, your body can, the, all those muscles can relax and your head's not going to fall over and wake you up. And you want to be in a dark space that, you know, no one's watching you. So you feel safe. So a glassy office is not a great place. It used to be that, um, like you think of mad men or whatever, and, you know, you could just close the door, lay down on your couch and take a 15 minute nap and no, just say, you know, don't interrupt me for 15 minutes. And it was totally fine. That's kind of looked upon as lazy now. And it's not that way in all cultures. You know, in Japan, they're still okay with naps. The siesta is still a big thing in, in um, Spanish-speaking countries. Um, and the way that we know that taking a mid-afternoon nap is good um, is that places like um, China, when they industrialized, they forbade um, they forbade the nap, and the productivity didn't go up. So there's there's this they call it a sleep wake window that opens up in the afternoon, and your it's a harmonic gate in your circadian rhythm, and it just opens up and and so if you can find, uh, I don't know, a secret room in your office 
where you can shut and lock the door, set your phone alarm for like 15, 20 minutes. And I, I promise you, you will feel refreshed. Even if you don't totally fall asleep, you'll feel refreshed. You can have a cup of coffee after. Um, and then you'll, you should be a hundred percent. And have you seen these places, Heidi, at the airport now around American airports where you can like basically go in and take a nap? Have you seen Yes, those? I've seen these pods, right? Yeah, they're little pods, and they're trying to create that cool space where you can be prone, and it's dark, and it's you're by yourself. Japanese. And they're, they're like in 15-minute increments, which is really kind of all you need. Yep. Isn't that amazing? I mean, you could just do 15 minutes, and you can feel much better. Well, I love what Dr. Dingy said. He said, quote, being awake is like carrying a bag on your back. The longer you're awake, the more bricks you add, he says. And when you take a nap, you remove some of those bricks. And by the way, Dr. Dingy's that's the uh, professor you talked at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. His book is Sleep and Alertness, Chronobiological, Behavioral, and Medical Aspects of Napping. So he wrote a yeah, whole book on this. He wrote a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting at a bookstore near you, Heidi. Yeah, I'm sure. I think you have to buy it on Amazon Use. I think it may be out of print. But he's written other books as well and lots of papers. But he's so into this subject. And we talked for at least an hour. Um, but he was, we were asking, you know, is there a way that employers can, can help, uh, you know, their, their employees to have this built in? And he said, you know, employers are really all about their profits, their bottom line. And so, you know, I've seen it at, you've seen it at Google. You know, they have those pods. Yep. So some forward-thinking um, corporations do have that, but I do think there is still um, a stigma attached to taking a nap in the middle of the day. And if we can just somehow societally remove that stigma, we would have a much more productive society. We would be less hangry, grumpy, have nicer exchanges. Um, you know, work life would be better balanced. Um, and free coffee. Well, here at Our American Stories, the staff has free coffee and they can nap anytime, especially when we're doing the show. Heidi, thanks so much for joining us as always. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Go have your 15-minute nap after lunch. Oh, I will. And Heidi Mitchell, as always, the burning question from the Wall Street Journal. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we love bringing you the stories that you might not hear otherwise in this media obsessed with national politics and bitter partisan fighting. Today, we bring you the story of the mayor of Abilene, Texas, an African-American man who grew up without a father in a city with only 10% African-American population, but who's become a pillar of his community and an inspiration for us all. Mayor Williams, let's start in your childhood you tragically lost your father. How did your family cope, and how did things unfold as you got older? My father, James Earl Williams, was shot and killed in Abilene in January of 1973. And so it left my mother um, to raise us. I'm, I'm the oldest. Uh, and for me, uh, a church in Abilene, the Highland Church, um, a couple, an elder and his wife reached out to my mother 
And for 10 years, an elder's wife mentored my mother, and they helped us spiritually, emotionally, financially, but they really invested in our family. And if not for that couple, I would hate to think where we would be today. Uh, but for me, all through my life here in Abilene, um, you know, people have reached out to my family and to me specifically. And um, that doesn't mean it's absent from obstacles and, and issues that present itself, but I always felt pretty equipped. And uh, because of that, and I, I couldn't articulate it, in, you know, through my childhood, but I knew that I wanted to give back. I wanted to do something. So in my early 20s, I started volunteering. In fact, Abilene, and Abilene is in central west Texas. In the late 80s, early 90s, there were attempts made um, to use Abilene as a connector with El Paso and Dallas for drugs. And it was then Abilene experienced, uh, for the first time, real gangs uh, that tried to come in and, and, and set up Abilene as that intermediate between the two cities. And we had our first ride by shootings and everything associated with um, that sort of um, culture. And so Abilene, um, a guy named Gary McKittle was a mayor at the time, Baltimore, Maryland had initiated a program called Midnight Basketball in the early, in the late 80s. And it was a conference in Austin um, and that the mayor went to um, about using basketball as kind of a tool to could address, you know, motivate, encourage um, young men to make different choices. And so um, the next year, Abilene put in place what we call late-night basketball. And I was 21 years old, and I was asked as a volunteer leader to lead this community initiative. So we identified um, a couple of dozen um, volunteers, some dads, some college students, just other men and women who cared um, about the obstacles for these at-risk youth, and we started late-night basketball in Abilene. Very, very successful. A number of success stories occurred because of late-night basketball. And then for me personally, because I was looking, I was trying to identify, I mean, how could I, how could I give back? I mean, what could I do? And again, I, I didn't articulate it at the time, but I knew I wanted to do something. But that was how I got involved and my involvement in this community um, started there but didn't end there. I was on committees and boards, but I spent most of my time trying to uh, mentor at-risk youth, everything from being a, a big brother um, to a lunch buddy, but um, that's what I've always done. And uh, in 2001, um, I was asked to consider by just some of the community you're thinking about running for city council. I had no idea what I was doing at all. And uh, we had a gentleman on the council who had resigned. And this was in September of 2001. So right after 9-11 occurred. And um, I announced, pretty naive and unsure of what I was really getting myself into. And I, and I, I drew an opponent that was probably about 20 years my senior, a decorated Marine and a good man. And because after 9-11, we're very patriotic. You know, I knew I was going to do my best, but I was not sure about the outcome. Well, we won that race in 2001, and so I served on Abilene City Council 
um, every since then. Tell us a bit more about that family at church that stepped into the gap after you lost your father. Talk about how they and your family and your faith shaped you. Well, I think my, my mother, my grandfather, and Nell and Grady Jolly, those four people together changed the trajectory of my life. And what they did for me, um, for my family, it, there's nothing I can do that would ever repay that. I mean, that had compassion for a little boy with no dad to care enough to make a financial investment, a spiritual investment, an emotional investment, knowing, acknowledging that I could not provide a return on that said investment. I think that in the essence of Christianity, that is true Christianity. You know, when we're able to do for others that they cannot do for themselves, it is, I believe, in my own faith walk, um, I, I believe that Christianity cannot be confined by four walls, that it goes beyond just a building, the parcel of land that that church resides on. Christianity is an active display of Christ in you, and the Jollies were that family for Anthony Williams. And before we talk about how you became the mayor of Abilene, tell us a bit more about your life outside of politics. Lynette, my bride and I, we celebrate 29 years of marriage here in December. She's an, an Abilene girl. Um, I really never dated. I was so young when uh, we got together, and because of my childhood, I always wanted to be a father and I wanted to be a husband. Um, and so I had a pretty uneventful life. Uh, just worked hard and uh, tried to raise my family. Professionally, I was a retail guy, so. Um, I worked at a lumber yard called Payless Cashways for about 10 years of my life. I started as a kind of a loader, a lumber loader, and after I cleared my degree, and I went to McMurray University here in Abilene. After my degree, I became a, a retail manager, sales guy, and operations guy, and I actually moved to Wichita Falls, it's a community about two hours to our, our northeast. Um, so I left Abilene for two years, five months, and four days. But who's counting, right? And then I got a call about Abilene Christian University having an opening at the bookstore, a retail job. Applied for that job, um, and the gentleman who was hiring was actually a member of the Highland Church, the church that really made a big difference in my life. And he was actually my fifth-grade Sunday school teacher, and he hired me. Um, at a time where the bookstore was not in the best shape, and we had about a year to turn things around. I didn't have much experience in the bookstore industry, but had a lot of good people, and we've had a lot of success. So um, this is my 22nd year at Abilene Christian University. Um, from the, being a bookstore manager, I worked my way up to the um, chief business services officer, overseeing all retail operations um, at the university, kind of the on-campus entrepreneur is, is what my role was. I had a retail uh, portfolio of around $15 million annually and also oversaw purchasing. So that was, you know, 20 to $60 million annually, depending for building or not. So 
That's what I did for a number of years. But I always stay connected with the community. And after the break, we'll continue talking with Anthony Williams about how those community ties led him to becoming the mayor of Abilene, Texas. But my my goodness, without that couple exhibiting that love, that Christian love, and we don't hear those stories too often in the media about what Christians do in their day-to-day lives, we're not afraid to tell them here in Our American Stories. They're so beautiful. Mayor Anthony Williams' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Anthony Williams, and we just heard some of his incredible life story about losing his father to violence as a young boy and being raised with the love of his biological and church family. Now let's talk about the race for mayor. What prompted you to throw your hat into the ring against an opponent who could spend tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars more than you? I thought to run for mayor not because I had ambitions of being a state representative or senator or really, to be honest, nothing really beyond Abilene. I was just always concerned about making Abilene better. And and really, I didn't know it at the time, but I've always just wanted to be sure that I showed my gratitude for the things done for me and my family by um, doing the same for others. Uh, as a city council person, I had never raised more than $8,000 or $8,800 ever. Um, and so I was really kind of initially kind of unsure. But I mentioned I worked with youth, at-risk youth, for a number of years. And one thing that I always would tell them and trying to encourage them not to allow fear and obstacles to dissuade them is that I had a cliche I talked about never allow what your ears hear or your eyes see to determine what your heart believes. And so I thought about those things, and it's hard to explain now, but we put together a team of volunteers. It was a recent Texas Tech graduate who had absolutely no local experience, but I liked her spunk and spirit, and I agreed I was going to pay her a $1,000 a month to run my campaign. Now, again, I never raised any kind of money politically at all, but I, I, I made a commitment I was going to raise that money if I had to pay for it myself, and I didn't have any sort of geographer for my commercials or multimedia, but I knew a young man that had went to um, Abilene Christian years ago and was driving a truck, a FedEx truck, and um, I hired him to do all of my commercials, all of my multimedia, Um, and then we had volunteers, and that was my team. We knew we could not raise as much money as my opponent, but we thought that we could outwork him, 
And so I personally walked around 2,000 doors, and then our team collectively walked another 18,000 doors. And, you know, our race, because it was a runoff, our race was six months. I took off Easter Sunday. I took off Mother's Day. And then I took off the weekend after the general election. So those four days I took off. But other than that, I campaigned every single day. I was I was block walking or I had a forum. I was doing something. Like you wouldn't have much money, so we used social media to advertise weekly events. So I would go to a a coffee shop, a restaurant. Uh, I will go to a some sort of place in the community and invite people to come hear me, and I will talk about Abilene, Texas, and I will talk about the things that I envision for this community. And one thing that I, I talked about was kind of a theme when I use a metaphor, uh, a table as a metaphor, and I talked about if I became mayor, that more people will be around that table. And I talked about diversity a great deal, but I, I went beyond gender and ethnicity and talked about diversity of thought, opinion, and ideas. And I just believe that if we came together as a community and put those things that divide us to the side, that we could do some things that we couldn't do otherwise. And people bought into that. And so uh, for six months, that was my message. Um, and after several pairs of shoes were worn out, um, you know, I think we're effective in, in communicating. Well, let's talk about the day you were sworn in. I want to read something to you because it, it's, it's so good. It's from the Abilene Reporter News. Quote, and this is their editorial. The editorial board wrote this. The people crowded into the room may never have been more diverse. Men and women, young and old, white, black, and brown, some dressed casually, some in suits and dresses, people of different political views for sure, and probably people of different sexual orientations. But what they shared was the moment an African-American had won an election as mayor. The look on some old-timers' eyes in particular in that audience suggested pride and satisfaction that a once unthinkable event has occurred. Talk about that moment for your town, for your family, and in the end for your state and country. Well, gosh, that was, it was a packed house, and it was packed full of emotions. You know, I had uh, my entire family there. Um, you know, the leader of our family was my great-grandfather, a man who stepped in when I didn't have a dad of, of my own, uh, who uh, didn't enjoy the things I have an opportunity to enjoy. And I just couldn't help but think about how proud he would be if he was alive seeing his grandson being sworn in uh, in a community that that he would never have that opportunity. And that room was very, very diverse. I mean, people supported me. You had the guy who was the, the um, chair of the local Republican Party um, who not just supported me, he supported me financially. And then you have a, a gentleman who is um, running um, for a, uh, a representative seat who is uh, one of the leading Democrats in our community, 
um, I mean, who has uh, lives an alternative lifestyle. You have them in the same room at the same time. And so I think symbolic in a way, what that room represented was who we are as a nation. And what I hope that not just my candidacy, but more importantly, my victory communicates that we can all work together for a common good of advancing our country when we put aside those things that easily divide. That's so well said. And let's talk a little bit about what your great-granddad did live through in Anson, Texas, and that was Jim Crow, poll taxes, having to take an aptitude test before yes. voting. I you mean, know, you, you can't make this up. We know it's true, but he lived it. Yes. You know, and my grandfather um, took pride in voting and, and looked at it as a privilege. And through intimidation and obstacles, he always made a point to try to go to the ballot box and, and voice his opinion and those candidates he selected. And that was passed on. So within my family, um, you know, Super Tuesday is comparable to Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, is what great enthusiasm, you know, that we participate um, in the election process. Um, I wish more people of all culture would assess the value that my grandfather did. If we did, um, our country would be much greater because you would have a lot more diversity of opinion and thought and ideas. And one last thing, just so that folks can know, you know, we also write a lot here on this show about boxes. And so a lot of people would have seen that Abilene, Texas, which is about 70% white, 20 to 25% Latino, and about 10% black, you were elected by an overwhelmingly white town and a town that also overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. Many in America would, would cast your town of Abilene without knowing that you were elected as a town filled with racists because they elected Donald Trump. And I think you have a different message to tell the, the, the main media about these small towns, particularly at least the town you know, which would be Abilene. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, and of course, I'm not a local scientist. I've not done a research on campaigns and, and voting trends, and I don't get real focused on Washington, D.C. Or, or Austin, Texas, but I'm focused on Abilene, Texas. And I can say this, you know, I've been given every opportunity to be successful. And I think my success is driven by this community looking at me, not for what they may see in regards to the physical Anthony Williams, my tabernacle, I would call it, but who I am, the essence of Anthony. And I think that my pigmentation may differ from some of my neighbors, but at the core, uh, I am who they are and they who I am. I'm Abilenian. And if we could ever get past that and focus on who we really are, um, city by city, our country is better. State by state, we are stronger. And our nation is better. Well, thank you for that. And we're talking to, of course, Anthony Williams, the mayor of Abilene, Texas. And what a story. You won't hear it anywhere else, by the way, folks. Nowhere in this country you're going to hear about a local mayoral race and what it meant to a town, what it meant to a state, 
By the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you five great stories each week. Mayor Anthony Williams' story, the town of Abilene's story, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because um, it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face and he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was will, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or you know and and i could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made i think that was on january something it was mid-january um and we basically said if you have hate or uh racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her, I said, hey, this thing, you, you know, the post you just did, 
is going viral and she thought she was like how did i get a virus you know like she didn't even know oh, man. what viral was so they needed some help once that happened i'd say you know we probably got thousand inquiries to uh get help then we saw that that there was a need and we started redemption inc um we had someone help us build the website and i had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo. She kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was it's less to say than Random Acts of Tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it, and um, it just and, and then that took off, actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You know, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. That that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling or, like, a lot of them are are scared because, number one, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even travel from far away. So far, so and by the way, so far I've helped personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two. Yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared, but then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people, and and you know, I I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were, I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. The sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing, and it does. It definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-some years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess, and so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody, and so, you know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I, like, I definitely don't have to do it. But I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing that we do is we make them feel comfortable. And, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media 
if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, they're, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's Conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs or even racist people, they're... They get mad when people quit, and, and it really is true, you know, blood in, blood out. Like, a lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I don't feel like doing this anymore. It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today. You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that. So that they come, when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but we make sure that Hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys, kind of, I guess it's a, a, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or I, I, it, it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, <laughs> you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare. Because they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done, or felt, you know, the shame of, of uh, even hating somebody you know and and i think that's a cool thing and i'm sorry that they feel that way but it's cool that they they do you know i'm there to witness and and realize hey i made a mistake more of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes these folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others but also honest about their desire to change and many of the stories are actually very similar I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, there, 
the sad thing is they're all like they're all you know pretty much the same and and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody and um you know of course part of the thing was i didn't want them you know if they want to tell me then they can but we don't i don't make anybody say anything you know because they've already been judged enough i have so far seeing a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on and, and you know they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms and one of the kids Brandon that I tattooed he's engaged now and getting ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo it was really fun he, he traveled a little bit to uh come see us but he was extremely actually i think he traveled from new york city but he was extremely nice and and you know when he talked to some of the media people he he explained how he felt the shame of of having to do what he had to do but if he didn't do that you know it was more being a victim again and and again who wants to be a victim and these people are truly making attempts to change but Unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that that you know they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had not clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral. And then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because, you know, not everybody... The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that that these people believe them. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, forgiving somebody is, is more important, you know, to, and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions, it, it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it, it kind of it gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, uh, like, these people... These people, they, they've already done the work, you know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step, you know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up 
send them on their way. They've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles. Let's just say that. I, I, I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> I help them remove obstacles. They, I, I believe that the people that, uh, and I truly, really believe that, that they've already done what they needed to do. I didn't help them change. They did it themselves. I, I've tried to stay as humble as I possibly can. Like, you know, I have had people come up to me and, you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it, it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face. But like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy. I'm just the last guy in line. And for some reason, I got picked. You know what I mean? Like, like, I got picked to be that guy that is, so to speak, helping people and, and when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually. Yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up and um in fact on the website there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh operator in in a state like if you want to help us like we definitely need the help we definitely appreciate uh you know the 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 assistance Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out and and not saying that i'm better than somebody else i kind of believe that like for example if someone in indiana needs help well of course that's you know pretty far away from maryland and you know they're not going to come here but if i have somebody in, in indiana that can help them then i'll send them to them but i also want to be able you know to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be, give them a good service. So we actually look look at their websites, look at their work, and hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption Inc., whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave and help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates, my goodness, you got to choose. Sometimes not in a gang, you're going to get beat. you got to pick one. RedemptionInc.org is where you go. Redemption Inc., and that's I-N-K. Dot org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc. story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. Love, faith, work, business, history, sports, and courage. And all these stories from all over the country. And this one comes from a slightly unexpected place. Somalia, 1993. American forces were protecting a humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of the Somali warlord's top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. The ground task force was cobbled together to secure the first crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, saw how desperate the situation was. An armed force of hundreds converged on the crash site, and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into that crash site. This request was crazy, and it was denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again they were denied. One more time they asked, and finally, finally they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred-meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Shugart were killed in action. But because of them, because of their efforts, the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for America fighting men. But where does that leave the families of this hero? What about those kids? Well, Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, she wrote this letter, this remarkable letter, for their children, then aged six and three. My dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them. No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission... Your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse. Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? 
You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally, dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military, and I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, he did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad? You miss Daddy? You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night, before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly, he said, a poem in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform. And a poem, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, burying their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass this grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute, a final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice. Quiet but confident in the words he wanted us to have if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life, but always, always follow your heart. Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom.
And what a beautiful letter from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon's bride, Carmen. And always we're stunned and pretty staggered by the beauty in the writing of so many soldiers in this country and their families. Jim Carroll's war letters, we've spent a lot of time on them. It's some of the best writing in America, folks. It comes from you. It comes from the people of this country. We're beautiful people. I wanted to share another piece of writing, this one from Master Sergeant Gary Gordon himself. This was a letter he crafted to his bride in the event of his death. And soldiers in conflict have a habit of doing this. They know what could happen. Here's that letter. Quote, I'm so very lucky to have you as a wife. I know you have the ability to go far, and shall, as long as you believe. It takes longer to build that foundation because the bricks break off now and again. Life's funny sometimes. The key is to keep a sense of humor. Don't take it seriously. Enjoy it. The real secret to life is already inside us. Just dig a little deeper. My goodness, what beautiful words for anybody to live by. And as always, a call out to all of our fighting men, those who came before, those that will come after, their courage and self-sacrifice, always in order. And we love to share these stories, stories of courage, love, loss, and faith, here on Our American Stories. stories and now we bring you the story of an american artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace tv sets not only from coast to coast but around the world from muncie indiana here's jesse edwards with our look into the life of bob ross if you mention the name bob ross around a baby boomer they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his... Beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet -wet technique. 
His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes. And we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white. And it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. There. His soothing voice continues to calm people and his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, there are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas, and very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet... Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then-18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I had to, I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. Painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture, and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody, nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. And was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, 
I got off the plane, the first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. It's so beautiful. And the light plays through it. And these, all these little ice-covered frosty things, they act like prisms. And they break up the light and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying really already enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. Mm. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. It does nothing else. It should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. It's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and, and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, It'll show in your painting, and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. 
And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, (laughs) and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) There we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom? To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story. Here on Our American Stories, great job as always by Jesse.